Well, I don't have to introduce myself since Mark gave such a good introduction, except that I, I, you need to know I'm, you're going to hear some southernisms <laughs> from Louisiana. And uh, I come from a mission diocese so, uh, with only uh, about 5 or 6% Catholic. So, so I have that kind of attitude, and maybe uh, that's something of up here, but you all are much more Catholic than I am. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm all, just always delighted to come to the West Coast and to see the beauty of the uh, landscape here as a flatlander Louisiana. So uh, I thank you. Now, yesterday, I know everybody was praying for rain but me. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm sorry that didn't happen for you, but I'm glad for me so that I could look around at the beauty. Well, we've been having a conversation that we didn't think we were going to have as Catholics, uh, at least not much, and it's about Eucharist, isn't it? All over our country, we've been talking about Eucharist and with the bishops and the, the study and the, and the document that they're putting together. And so it's, it's always a, a topic that's worth discussing. In fact, one of the things I love to do is people, uh, really wonderful theologians, continue to write books on Eucharist by the hundreds. I mean, because there, it is such a deep sacrament that you cannot ever come to the absolute nub of it, to the center of it, because we're too, it's a mystery. That's the word for sacrament, by the way. In, in uh, the Greek, the very first thing we use for sacrament is mysterion. It means mystery. We'll never be able to plummet. So when we make a big deal out of uh, the, uh, about the, the real presence, which is certainly settled Catholic dogma, there are still many ways to talk about that real presence and how it comes to pass. Sometimes people think, uh, who are out in the community, like the, the media and folks who are not lettered in, in religion, that somehow Jesus' very uh, flesh comes before us, and we see him, the flesh throbbing on the altar. There are these miracles who talk about that kind of thing, and that their blood is flowing off the altar. That is not Catholic doctrine. Catholic doctrine is that Jesus has given us a, 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 a you might call it a parable, a metaphysical presence, that he's there definitely, really there, but we can't see it. And that is the key, that we can't see it. If everything becomes present and, and together, then the miracle ceases if we can understand the whole thing. If we, or, now, he gives you know, little signs every now and then to help us out. But the basic thing about Catholic uh, doctrine with the Eucharist is that it goes somewhere. For example, um, we used to say that we receive the body and blood of Christ, but the best language today is that we do communion. And, uh, and I'll tell you a story about that. My, my dad, Southern Baptist, as, as, as everybody in, in our area is, about half of them, and uh, he came from a very devout family. Uh, as I like to say, uh, that side of the family was much holier than my Catholic side, <laughs> at least in the terms of, of uh, when you think about what Louisiana Catholicism is like, because it's very freewheeling, and you may have heard the laissez-les-bontons-roulés uh, idea about Louisiana, that is to say, let the good times roll. That's really being Catholic for a Louisiana Catholic. My dad's family was much more straight-laced, and he grew up, you know, very exact about what it meant to be a good person. So I learned a lot about integrity and life and those kind of things from him. 
So all this time, he keeps to his uh, faith. He was the eldest child, for one thing, and so he didn't want to be the one to to uh, set aside his Southern Baptist faith. But gradually, he started coming to us, with us to church, and for 50 years he came, and yet never joined the Catholic Church. And he was 82 when I happened to be with him, thank you, Lord, without my mother present, who refused to discuss religion, because that was sort of a pact with them, because they wouldn't uh, interfere with each other's life. And he says, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm with him, rocking in the chair, he's 82, and and so we're, we're having a nice little conversation. Gave out of things to talk about. So I finally said, Pa, I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time. All these years, you've been coming to church with us. You've done just about everything, except you've never become Catholic. You've never been able to, to receive the body and blood of Christ, which is so precious to us. <clears throat> and he said, you know, uh, I said, why not? He said, well, you know, I, uh, I love the church, but I can't get my head around that dogma about the body and blood of Christ. Can you explain it? And I said, oh, Lordy, I've gotten myself in trouble. So first thing I said, well, you know, I can't give him all the usual stuff. Transubstantiation, he's heard about all of that, you know, over the years, and it hadn't made a dent. <laughs> so I said, how am I going to discuss this? So I had to go back, Holy Spirit, please help me. And, and the Holy Spirit did. One of the few times that I can really tell you the Holy Spirit was right there talking to me. Because he said, use scripture. <laughs> and I, immediately I, th I thought about the Matthew scripture, which is very famous, but it's not at the center of our own dogma, dogmatic understanding. And that is, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And I said, Pa, do you believe that? And he said, well, certainly I believe that, absolutely. I said, you've made the, the critical step already. You're never going to get any further with it unless you start to do it. And I didn't mean to just receive. I meant to do it. That is to say, come up in that procession to say amen to everything that has been going on in the Eucharist for that day, the remembrance of all the things Jesus has done for us, the gift of ourselves as sacrificial offerings to take out to the world to become as Jesus says, the bread of life for him, along with him. That's what, that's what the Eucharist is about. And it lies, lies fallow without doing that. We must be those who, in, in our offering of the Eucharist, offering of ourselves in the Eucharist, are those who are becoming the bread of life like Jesus is as we go out and do something that's amazing. Because we get transformed, you know, that's what sacraments do from our understanding of sacramental theology. It changes us. Baptism changes us. Eucharist changes us. Uh, the sacrament of reconciliation. Gosh, you all go to, to that in hordes yesterday. I thought I'd never get out of the confessional. <laughs> but it, it's, uh, it's a, one, once we get to that understanding that God is changing us and making possible for us to do things that we never thought we could. That's what Eucharist does at its most important. And as you know, the church says very clearly, it's the source and summit of life for us. So uh, what I'm asking you to do when I talk about unbound, I'm carrying it to the next step, is to become uh, the bread of life for these folks all around the world, something that many of us, you know, don't think it's possible for us to do, but we can. We can become family 
to these kids that you saw when you were coming in on that table, and the elderly, too. So let me tell you a story or two. Unbound's been going on for 40 years, and it started with two uh, American Catholic lay missionaries who went to Guatemala. And they came back and said, we want to keep this going, this connection in, in offering ourselves as, as nation, as people, as faith, uh, as folk of faith. So they came upon the idea of sponsoring. It was early on, so, I mean, there weren't too many sponsoring. Now there's lots and lots of sponsoring organizations. But we, I think that Unbound has done probably the best job that I know of in the sponsoring process because they've taken care of, of everything. They've involved the people, first of all, who make their own projects together with the Unbound staff who work with them in the various countries. They then give uh, social, they have some social workers who work with the families who are, and, or the people who are sponsored and make sure that everything possible is done to get rid of the obstacles, that they're on the road to achieving their goals, all those kinds of things. And finally, they've created support groups because they only have like 10 cells in any particular area. So if they come to a small area, they invite people to, to uh, give, uh, say what they would like to do, and then they work with them, and they either accept or not, if they have room, for those who, uh, who would like to be, uh, uh, like to be sponsored. So, uh, and these 10 become a support group, these 10 families, usually represented by the moms, by the way, and they, they meet monthly to discuss all those things, what's in the way, what's going well, how we can support each other, how to, uh, and they pray together, and then they try to solve. And one of my favorite uh, stories, which I really shouldn't tell, but it takes another minute or so, is they went down after one of those groups when they found out one of their numbers had, uh, had the water cut off in their house. This was in a little mountain village. And she had to go down to the river, which was a mile away, and carry her water back in barrels over her shoulders, you know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> and so, but she'd never been given a reason why it was off. So they all trooped down to the, what I call the water commissioner in, in the town uh, in, uh, in El Salvador and uh, surrounded his desk and said, this lady's water has been cut off now. She has a family. Y'all have to get that back on. And that's unheard of, by the way, in these kind of developing countries for women to do that kind of thing. And so the water was back on the next day. <laughs> Whatever was wrong, he was able to do it well. And so it's a, it's a little bit of empowerment, too, that comes forth where people see, you know, I can make change. I can do things differently from what was done, which is my first story. <clears throat> my first sponsored person, which was about 22 or 3 years ago, was a young man from El Salvador uh, called Eliseo. And he was eight years when they gave him to me. And uh, he, obviously, I noticed from my first letter to, with him, uh, we write letters back and forth like good friends will and family members will. And uh, he, he was just giving me the normal thing, an eight-year-old. Whoever wrote it for him did a good job. And, uh, but he was a smart kid, and you could tell the ideas which were his. Like, I'm, I'm a good boy. I help my parents with the dishes, and uh, I help clean, and I'm, I'm the eldest, so I take care of my younger brothers and sisters. And I love football. That's when I knew it was real. I love football. So anyway, so he's, we write back and forth. And uh, when he was 13, he sent me a, a special letter because he was an excellent student. I got to know that about him. And he wrote me this letter. It says, Father, you know, uh, my father has this grocery in the front room of our house, which is how he 
keeps body and soul together for all of us. And that's fine. I love him, but I want more. I want to have, I, I feel as though I have a gift to do more than, than that. Uh, so I, so I, I think I want to have a profession. So I started praying. I said, Lord, what is he going to want? I hope it's something attainable, you know. And so nobody had gone past the sixth grade in his, in his family uh, before that. So anyway, when he's 15, he writes me, he says, well, Father, I think I have decided what profession I'd like to try for. And I was saying, please, Lord, make it be easy. And he says, I want to be an engineer. Oh, Lordy. So another 10 years of school, <laughs> whatever. So in any case, uh, so that went on, and he didn't ever drop it. I was praying, 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 and told him I was on his side, but I was very skeptical. And so uh, anyway, at 17, he writes me, again, great student, and he says, uh, guess what? I'm applying to the University of El Salvador in San Salvador, a city of 2 million people, and he, le he lived in a little mountain village about 100 miles away from uh, San, uh, San Salvador. So I always had all the terrible mother hen stuff in my head. You know, he's going to go, even if he gets in, oh, he's going to get in with the drugs, and, you know, he's going to be fall out into society, and, oh, gosh, be horrible. So I had little faith. So I never found out. I didn't find out what had happened because he did apply. I knew that. He said he was applying. And it wasn't until he'd been in about a year because he... They usually uh, rotate off the system when they get their secondary degree when they're 18, and he was about to have that happen when he told me he was applying. So, uh, so he got in, and he told me he had gotten in. He managed to get a, a message to me, even though we were no longer sponsor and uh, and sponsoree. So, uh, and I didn't, then I didn't hear from him, but I kept praying. And four year, three years after that, he writes me a little note again, smuggled in. And he says, Father, I just needed to be in touch with you so that you would know because you and, and one day bound have been so important to my attaining this objective that I have finished and I've got a civil engineering degree and I'm going back to my home province where I've gotten a job in civil engineering, just about 60 miles from where he, he lived. Imagine, it's a miracle, first of all, but imagine what it meant to his family, number one, for him, and then for his family, and for the people next door with their kids and the people in the next town, the next uh, village, saying, did you hear what happened to Eliseo in La Mission? Maybe one of you can do this, or maybe you have the feeling that you can do something special. It's like dropping that pedal, pebble in the water and letting the circle go out. That's how societies ultimately change. And, and, and he's one of the cogs in making that happen now in El Salvador, and I'm sure there are many others. Now, if you're a sponsor, you may not get one of those, that kind of miracle story, but you'll have many others. And there are over 100 sponsors in this parish alone. And each of them can tell you some similar stories about what, is, what they have gotten out of being a sponsor and what they have found from their sponsored person, the gifts that they have given them as, uh, to share with, the, with others here in, in this area. And even even the family-like relationship that's developed. So it's very beautiful. The second person I had, it was a, an elderly lady, which we do elderly as well. And they have some terrible times, as you know, uh, for even in our own country, uh, elderly sometimes get sort of shunted to the back room. And that's exactly what happened to this lady, that she lost her husband. They had rented their little house. 
so they lost the house. She lost the house. Had to go live next door. A lady put her up in her back room. And, but she had nothing. I mean, she had uh, not even decent clothes that she could go outside and mingle with. Uh, she did a little work in the, in the kitchen and, and uh, cleaning the floors and that kind of thing to keep, for her keep. And, but uh, an unbound came, and she said to herself, you know, I don't really have any talents to speak of that I know I can do, but, but I can weave. And so she and a neighbor lady got together, and they got on the idea, we can make some straw hats. Now, this is in Dominican Republic, and they lived about an hour and a half walk from the beach. Where, and you know the beaches in, in Dominican Republic. Some of you may have been to them. They're beautiful, and they're full of Americans and Europeans. And so they went, they were accepted, and they went down to the beach every, uh, during the season especially, like three days a week, and sold these little hats. And they got enough for her to be able to make some money and pay the people who were keeping her and, and give her some honor and some dignity and to be able to buy enough, some clothes that she could go out and she became a leader in some of the civic and community organizations in her town, in her little suburb of this town close to the beach. So she had a life for about eight years until she got sick and couldn't do it anymore. But it was like from death to life, which led me to understand finally, after many years, what Unbound was about. Because the title always sort of made you strike your, you know, scratch your head. What in the world is Unbound? So all I could think of was the, the Lazarus story. We all know that, right? Lazarus is in the tomb, dead as a doornail. And he's been there for three days plus, so there's no question. He's gone. And so Jesus comes at the behest of Martha and Mary, and he calls out, Lazarus, come out. And here he comes, this guy, all bandaged up like a mummy. And Jesus says only one thing to the disciples, the handlers around him, so to speak. And he says, unbind him and let him go free. That's what Unbound is trying to do. With, again, it's, and it's people like you who are making this happen. This is the only way that we market. Uh, 300,000 of you around the country in Catholic parishes, just like St. Nicholas, are making these kinds of things happen that I'm describing. So I hope that you will, you will make it possible to become the bread of life, as it were, for somebody that's in another country and allow them to be that kind of catalyst for that nation as well as for themselves and for the world <clears throat> and ultimately for God because that's what he wants to is people who are free to do what they need, what their gift is, what their gift back is. So may that happen. It's $40 a month, which is not, hey, I understand. When I retired, I had to make special uh, provision. So the way I did it, I needed to go on a diet anyway. I, uh, I decided I would forego a beautiful dinner that I had once a month with a good friend. And that's how I do my 40, bu 40 bucks still. My present uh, young lady I want you to pray for, her name is Lilian in Honduras. She doesn't know what she's up to yet. <laughs> she's 14 and right in the middle of, you know, many thoughts. So, uh, and I understand, I've read the one thing that scares you to death is that Honduras is the most dangerous country in the world for teenage girls for being uh, brought into the sex trafficking and all that kind of stuff. So these are the kind of things that we can prevent by being a sponsor 
in, in this way. So there are just many things that can happen. Unbound is at the top of the heap in, in, the, in the charity ratings. If you go online and ask any of those rating companies, you'll find us at the top of all the sponsoring groups. You'll find us at the top of any of them that work with the poor. Uh, and it's just remarkable what they've been able to accomplish. 92 cents of every dollar goes right to the program, to the people who are involved. Not to administration, not to marketing, not to uh, advertising or anything like that, not to fundraising. So, uh, so it it's really does a remarkable job. You can know that your, your, your sacrifice is, is doing its work. So come to the tables. At afterwards, four, uh, $40 a month is the minimum. But actually, you can do more <laughs> if you like. But uh, we're, this has been a wonderfully generous parish, and we know it will continue. You're my last chance this time until two or three years when we come back, although you can go online, and I hope you will. There are some little sheets. Uh, this is the sponsor packet, which you all passed, but there also are these sheets, and I hope if you can't sponsor today or take the time to fill out, it only takes about five minutes, to fill out the little form uh, committing you, then uh, take this home and go online, unbound.org, and you can find the same kind of thing online, although you won't be able to get any of the ones who are here. This is special one-to-one -one kind of thing here with you. So God bless you for having me, and uh, I hope that uh, the bread of life for this world will come from the people of St. Nicholas. Amen? Uh, well, I forgot to tell you the end of the story my dad became Catholic. <laughs> and we, we brought him into the church on Christmas Day in our home, and he was Catholic for nine years when, before he died. So it was, a, it was a beautiful thing to happen just because I finally dared something out of the ordinary. <laughs> so uh, God, was, God has been so good. So thank you for listening to uh, all that I had to say about Unbound. I know it's not short because there's a lot to be said about this organization. And you're our last chance today. There are all these young people and elderly waiting for you because we didn't have quite as many as I'd have liked to have had from the other, from the other two masses. So it's up to the 11 a.m. mass, right? <laughs> okay. So may God bless you this day and every day in his love.